The Ten Commandments are very familiar texts to most believers because of the um, ways that not only our culture knows about certain commands, but the uh, language that you see in the New Testament drawing upon certain commands, the lives of the prophets and their oracles drawing upon these commands. If you start to read in a serious way the Old and the New Testaments, you realize that the commandments are crucial to the life of the people of God. And they don't become less important when we are in Christ in the New Covenant. Instead, the Ten Commandments reflect the character of God who is delivered in the Old Testament and redeemed sinners through Christ in the New Testament. The section that we started last time together in chapter 444 began a prologue and a stage setting leading into the Ten Commandments. So what we did last time was we set the scene from chapter 444 through chapter 5, verse 6, and then we looked at the first four commandments together. What we'll look at tonight is the last of those commandments and then what happens right after those commandments are reviewed, uh, some reminders from the scene in Exodus. I'm taking chapter 444 through chapter 6, verse 3 to be one large unit. Uh, next Sunday morning and evening, we will pick up the text in Deuteronomy with Deuteronomy 6, 4, uh, taking a week off from 1 Timothy and returning to that the week following. Uh, so beginning next Sunday morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Such a crucial text about loving God with our heart, soul, and might. Uh, so I look forward to thinking on Deuteronomy 6 next Sunday morning and evening. We will look at uh, these commandments that take us to Deuteronomy 6, 3 tonight. When we look at the fifth commandment, we are picking up in a section of the commandments that begin to address a horizontal set of relationships. It has sometimes been wondered, do the commandments divide five and five? You've got five commandments, maybe addressing our relationship with God, five addressing our relationship with others. I'm inclined toward the Old Testament interpreters who see four and six to be the proper breakdown. I know it's nice when things are perfectly symmetrical in that way and it'd be five and five, but it looks as if something is happening with the fourth and fifth commandment requiring a transition. The fourth commandment is the first commandment that doesn't sound like a negative opening. Uh, you hear things like, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment is stated positively. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And all of that is referring to our relationship with the Lord, how he is to be worshipped and esteemed, how his worth is to be uh, responded to. Once you start the fifth commandment, you also see a positively worded command, don't you? Honor your father and your mother. It, it doesn't say you shall not dishonor your father and your mother. It, that's still the point, but it's stated positively, isn't it? And then there's a return to negative openings. You shall not uh, murder. You shall not commit adultery. And, and I, I think the idea here is the fourth and fifth commandments appearing together requires some reflection on how they relate to what precedes and follows. I think the first four commandments address how to love the Lord. And then five through ten, starting with honor your father and your mother, have in mind not primarily one's act toward God, but one's act towards someone in the home, the father and the mother. As the Lord your God commanded you, it certainly implies, doesn't it, that our honoring of father and mother is obedience to the Lord. Okay, so we, it's not as if things should be so parceled out to where loving our neighbor is somehow not obedience to God. We demonstrate love for God by not only esteeming and worshiping God, but also obeying Him in our horizontal relationships. 
We could say that all of these commandments then are about obeying the Lord. But 5 through 10 are specifically addressing horizontal dimensions of life. Honor your father and your mother. In his large catechism, Martin Luther said that out of the authority of parents, all other authority is derived and developed. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Out of the authority of parents, all other authority is derived and developed. Because growing up in the home and learning how to understand the importance of mom and dad and their instructions, even though fallen parents we all have, we recognize the importance of mom and dad in the home as a kind of training ground for what will be later in life living outside the home and pursuing life in God's world. Honoring your father and your mother is primarily a heart posture, isn't it? It's more than just saying to do what is good toward them, though an outward emphasis on blessing and external uh, forms of honor would not be prohibited at all, but encouraged. Honor your father and your mother has to do with a reality in the home that begins in the heart. Honoring is something that you do first inwardly. Honoring your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. The uh, incentive is that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There is a covenant responsibility that the Israelites are to embrace. They're to lean into this. That the way they treat their parents is going to be something that is speaking about their spiritual standing. And so if these parents are, if these parents are the authorities in the home, and let's say they're, they're training uh, their uh, folks in the home to consider the Lord and His truth and His word, they're trying to do what Deuteronomy 6 verses 6 and following are saying, teaching uh, the commands of God to their children, talking of them and when you sit in your house and walk along the way. If there is a rejection of the parents... What might that mean spiritually? And I think the, the, the teasing out of that across Israel's history is, if you have people rejecting the authority of their parents, then what that is doing is suggesting a deeper rebellion that's not just against one's parents, but against one's uh, God and the commands of God for life and for godliness. Honoring your father and your mother then matter not just for those human authorities, those earthly representatives, but rather matter ultimately in a spiritual sense for your obedience to the Lord. But I don't think we have to limit it to how a a young child might honor a father and mother. I think that's included, of course, but consider the audience of these commandments. The majority, I say majority, I don't have a poll here, but if you had all these Israelites in view at the bottom of Mount Sinai and the Lord is speaking these words, how many uh, Israelites of that great mass would have been adults? How might this command resonate with something adults themselves should obey? The Old Testament scholars will talk about the importance of considering one's aged parents and not to treat them with contempt, but rather to see how one might honor them even into the progression of old age. One person puts it this way. The central concern of this commandment may be to care for one's parents and not treating them with contempt and therefore considering not just their young state as a child toward their parents in the home, but now even as adult children of aging parents, how I might show honor to them, to bless them, and to care for them. How important was this in the ancient world, where there might be multi-generational representation in a home, a single home? 
And, um, and while that varies from country to country and culture to culture, it's certainly the case that in the ancient world, this commandment would make sense for people to think, well, I'm a grown woman or a grown man now, but I have parents. How might I think of this command, this fifth commandment, upon my own life? Have you thought about how the Lord Jesus would demonstrate this? As a young man, here he is, 12 years old in the temple. And when he's restored to Mary and Joseph, when they found him in Jerusalem, we're told in Luke 2 that he obeyed and submitted his life to them, because here he is, the son, the incarnate son, but with parents whom he is to honor. Think of him now as an adult man. Here he is on the cross, and he says regarding his mother's well-being, with Joseph no longer on the scene, he says to John the disciple, Behold your mother, woman, behold your son. As if even in his dying moments, and more than just as if, I think it is what's happening, he is caring for his mother as an adult man. He is keeping the fifth commandment. That's what you see the Lord Jesus doing as a young man. It's what you see him doing as an adult. I think we should infer that in the years between, his life was characterized by the same thing. Honoring your father and your mother as the Lord commanded you. And the incentive here is flourishing life that it may go well in the land. If this commandment of God is rejected and the foremost and close in proximity relationships in the home are, are not characterized by right order and embrace and honor, what toll is that going to take spiritually on the Israelites in the land? Well, if this reje rejection of God's commands in the home spills over into the way they're going to interact interrelationally in the community of Israel, then it's not going to go well with them in the land. Because if they're not going to take the commands of God seriously in the most intimate and, and close of relationships, then what are the implications disastrously beyond that? The sixth commandment in verse 17, you shall not murder. Building on this, not only is this about honoring father and mother in the fifth commandment, extending how one might show honor and deference to and love toward one's neighbor outside the home. Certainly the sixth commandment applies inside the home, but certainly outside the home to, uh, to act in such a way that's going to honor the image bearing status of others around you means that you're not going to seek to take innocent life. This is not about um, killing in general. It's very carefully translated and I think rightly translated, you shall not murder. Sometimes believers will say that the sixth commandment is you shall not kill. There is a word for killing. It's a very general word that talks about the death of people in war or the death of, uh, of, of people uh, even in accidental cases. This is a specific word for murder that's about the premeditated homicide of an image bearer. This is then not about killing in general, but about the unlawful taking of life. You shall not murder. We see this even after the, uh, and by this I mean we see the importance of this notion, civilly and socially, right after Noah and his family emerged from the ark. In the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 9, the uh, practice of social relationships is to not be characterized by the taking of life unlawfully. As such, taking of innocent life would be followed by that murderer's life being forfeited. The shedding of innocent blood is a big deal across the Psalms and the prophets. If you read in the prophets, for instance, Isaiah or Jeremiah and their indictments against the nations, including the nation of Israel, 
they have a thematic in, uh, part of their indictments that include the shedding of innocent blood in so many of these prophetic oracles. What are they indicting the people of, uh, of Israel and then pagan Gentile nations around them for doing? For breaking natural law. They're breaking the moral law of God. They are violating the sanctity of image bearers. They are trampling life. So you shall not murder becomes an important part of Israel's covenant life, but it's not a command that arose within their covenant life. It preceded them and it follows them. Uh, we see even in the New Testament, honoring your father and mother, highlighted important by Jesus and the apostles, so as not taking innocent life, as well highlighted by them. Uh, this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, this is about the violation of the marriage vows. There are various acts of sexual immorality delineated in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. This is not about all of those. This is specifically about that when the man and woman are in covenant together, to breach the covenant vows is to commit sexual immorality known as adultery. Um, Jesus brings up this commandment actually in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't he, during the Sermon on the Mount. When he brings up this Seventh commandment in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery in his heart. I don't think this is Jesus saying that the internal lust is the same thing as the actual physical act um, outside of uh, the marriage covenant. Instead, I think he's saying the law of the seventh commandment begins with heart obedience. Where does the violation of the seventh commandment begin? Well, if the so-called law keepers in Jesus' day were saying, you know what, we've never committed adultery. I think Jesus would press the point of the law to say, well, where does it start though? Just like bringing up the condition of, or the commandment about murder begins in the heart for the premeditated homicide of an image bearer. It starts with some sort of rooted bitterness and hatred, some kind of malice that is growing within. It doesn't just jump to some sort of external act. Jesus is bringing up then the aim of the law. It's important to see this insight in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. What if they thought that the law was only regulating their outward behavior and not actually addressing the state of their heart toward their neighbor? I think Jesus is pressing the point that in Matthew 5, 27 to 30, the spirit of the seventh commandment is about how your heart is toward your neighbor. And if you simply indulge in sinful thoughts and lust in the heart, you are already in violation of the spirit of the seventh commandment, even if Jesus' contemporary said, but I've not committed adultery. Jesus has further questions for them. He has further questions about what the aim of the law is. The aim of the law is not just to cultivate external obedience. Didn't the Pharisees fall into that kind of trap? Finding themselves in the routines of emphasizing what was external and impressive to others, rather than considering their heart before God? Didn't their desire to represent certain external things even start to corrupt their praying and their giving and their fasting? Where Jesus would say, what if what you're doing in praying is simply praying to be seen? And when you're giving, simply giving in order to show. Or when you're fasting, contorting your face and this and that in order that people might look at you and think of you in a certain way. Instead, you should do what would be pleasing to your father who sees what is in secret. That's the aim of the law. The aim of the law is the heart obedience of God's people. I think this is why Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Because these commandments are aiming at that notion. Then we see the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. You shall not steal continues to cultivate one's right mindset and attitude toward one's neighbor. And one's neighbor and the the sanctity of the neighbor's life is represented in what the neighbor owns and has worked for. And if you were to rob or corrupt what the neighbor has achieved and has stewarded, what you are doing is violating the sanctity of your neighbor by the fact that your neighbor's identity extends to property and possession. Does that mean that one's property and possession equals to the neighbor's life? Of course not. Anybody would agree that it's better to have your wallet stolen than your life taken. We, we would agree that what one owns or possesses is not equal to the value of one's life. But it is to say there's a reason why we don't want people stealing from us. There's a reason we would find it uh, abhorrent um, to have that committed against us in some not only criminal but sinful way. When he says you shall not steal, this is about cultivating an attitude of respect towards one's neighbor. And love toward neighbor involves respecting what neighbor owns, what neighbor has. No society truly can thrive well where such an attitude is not present in the populace. If we are living in ways that are not respecting one's possessions and property, then there is disrespect toward one's neighbor personally. In other words, because what one owns is in some way wrapped up in the corporate uh, life and identity of the person to some degree, it is an offense to one's neighbor to steal from them. And you might say, but I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything against that person. I just took this. And that's the failure to recognize what the Bible is pulling together in a cluster of realities, both who the neighbor is and what the neighbor possesses. You shall not steal. And then the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is very important and is initially a law setting, a court setting. You had a day and age in the ancient Near East where you relied so heavily on first-hand witnesses, eyewitness testimony. There are all kinds of means of appropriating, building a case, and showing various exhibits to make a case in law courts nowadays that extend beyond eyewitness testimony. But you would really be in a bad way if you were brought into a court setting and somebody was knowingly bearing witness to something um, that they were claiming to bear witness to something that was not true. It would be to bear false witness. It would be to swear that you're telling the truth, but you are lying. So bearing false witness is to commit a breach of truth because by oath, you are presenting yourself as truth bearing when really what you're bearing is falsehood. What are the ramifications of that? Well, the ramifications of that are life-destroying. We just have to ponder the significance here that if the crime is significant enough and what you're bearing false witness of uh, is actually something that could put the, the accused's life in jeopardy, then false witness could actually lead to the unjust taking of human life. And so not bearing false witness was such a crucial element of uh, knowing what it is to love one's neighbor. But I don't think it has to be limited to the law court setting. If you are in conversation with someone and you are saying that you're telling the truth when you know you are bearing false witness, yes, you're not in a courtroom with your hand on the Bible, but you are presenting yourself as using your tongue with truth and you're knowingly deceiving. You're bearing false witness. 
What should the people of God's relationship with their neighbor be like? We should be people committed to the truth. Not trying to manipulate with our words in order to get some further agenda. One of the ways we love our neighbors is we're people committed to the truth. And we want to speak the truth. And we want to love the truth. And we want to speak the truth in love. But we want to commit to the truth. We don't want to bear false witness. We don't want to use words in some way that has a greater goal at the end than love of neighbor through truthful testimony. Instead, let us realize how important it is to be people growing in character and virtue with this component. That when we say something, we're people who can be trusted in what we say. Which brings us to the 10th commandment. This final commandment, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's, is also a heart attitude, similar to the idea of honoring one's parents, something that begins inwardly. And yet, verse 21 here in this 10th commandment is something that seems to reach back across the preceding ones. Because, because isn't it the case that coveting can lead to stealing? And that coveting can lead to adultery? And that coveting something could result in justifying bearing false witness in a court setting? Or isn't it true that coveting can lead to dishonoring one's parents? Or coveting lead to murder? People, out of a heart of covetousness, break all sorts of commandments. Uh, many theologians over the years have rightly noticed then that this final commandment seems to be at a rightful place among the ten because coveting lies at the heart of covenant violation. Desiring what one ought not desire. Seeking to achieve and acquire through some wicked means what ought to be acquired instead through faithful work full of integrity. A person commits murder, adultery, theft, and false testimony out of this kind of covetous heart all the time. He not only says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He talks about a number of things there. Your neighbor's house or his field, his male servant, his female servant. This would, this would involve uh, acts of uh, sexual immorality and thievery and all of these kinds of uh, breaches of covenant life. The Israelites are to conduct themselves in ways that start with the right heart toward one's neighbor. And we have to recognize that in the Ten Commandments here, there is uh, an exposing role these commands are supposed to play upon our heart. We can come to realize, hey, I don't always have the right heart toward my neighbor. I, I might find myself actually in some sort of violation of the spirit of one of these commandments because in my heart, I'm not attending to my attitude toward a fellow image bearer in Christ. The aim of the law was to guide the ethics of the people of God by fundamentally dealing with the heart of the Israelites. Because if their heart will love God and if their heart toward neighbor would be what it should, then you could recognize how many other civil and social things would simply take care of themselves. Throughout human history, the sheer preponderance of so many laws and societies is ongoing further proof that our heart toward our neighbor is not what it ought to be. We have to be people who are incentivized and warned through various consequences legally and socially to not conduct ourselves in certain ways. And these Ten Commandments were spoken by the Lord from a mountain on fire. A mountain that in Exodus 19 was covered with cloud and smoke and flame of fire reminding us in a way of Moses' encounter with the voice of God in the burning bush. But here not just a bush on fire, a flaming mountain. The powerful speech of God full of majesty and glory and power. And the people at the end of Exodus 20's record of the Ten Commandments are a people who are now afraid. 
they are not jumping up and down, clapping their hands with applause when the Tenth Commandment is spoken. In fact, if you read in Exodus 20 where they're standing, they're no longer so very close to the mountain. They've stepped back. It's as if every commandment, they took one big leap back farther and farther and farther until you get to the end of the tent and they say, you've got to stop, Moses, Lord. You can't, we can't bear another word. So what happens after these commandments are reiterated is Moses then reviews a scene that some of these Israelites would not have been at. In verses 22 to 27, the people have a request for Moses to mediate God's words. This is not a request present when Moses is reviewing this history in Deuteronomy 5. The request from the people is something Moses is retelling. Their request was old. Their request was 40 years ago. Their request was at Mount Sinai. And what they said sounded like this, and Moses is reviewing it. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. You go to Exodus 19 and 20 for that scene. And out of the fire and the cloud and the thick darkness and with a loud voice, and he added no more. You say, well, what about all the laws that followed? What do you mean he didn't add any more? Talking about here the moral law of the Ten Commandments. The other laws that follow in Exodus build on and expand the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are viewed as a very special set of commandments that in this case can be rightly said God did not add to them. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. The importance of the Ten Commandments as a group of instructions is something we covered last time. I won't reiterate all of that, but just to say that these two tablets of stone highlight further the uniqueness of this group of commandments. In the ancient Near Eastern um, covenant treaty-making context, the practice was that one party would have a copy of the agreement and the other party would have a copy of the agreement. And so you would have uh, those, those uh, treaties uh, in, in two forms, copies. When some Christians have read Deuteronomy 5 over the years, they've thought about these commandments as some of the commandments are on one of the stone tablets and the rest of the commandments are on another of the stone tablets. There is a different way of thinking about the presence of these two tablets, and it's probably the best way to conceive of it, that each tablet had all of the Ten Commandments. And that the reason there are two is because this is a covenant document. And in the ancient Near East, when a covenant was formed between two parties, two copies of the agreement existed. Another uh, example of why this could be the way to consider it is that in Exodus chapter uh, 33, uh, we recognize uh, that there is, in verse 15, writing on the front and the back of each of the stone slabs. So in Exodus 33, 15, these Ten Commandments were probably entirely written on each of these stone tabs. Then in their uh, slabs, tablets, tabs, not tabs, tablets or slabs, I have to pick one. In verse 23, and then he says, as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me. They didn't draw near to the Lord. They came to Moses with all their tribes and elders' heads, and they said, behold, in verse 24, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. Look at how they're describing the experience at Mount Sinai. They are describing the hearing of those commandments as an encounter with glory. 
And it's not because they were hid in the cleft of the rock like Moses was in Exodus 33 and 34. But it is the kind of event where a theophany has taken place, the presence of God descending with glory and power on this mountain. Something glorious has happened, but it's also fearful. It's not the kind of glory that made them comfortable. It's the kind of glory that made them afraid. Because this God is glorious and righteous. He's holy and transcendent. He's powerful and quakes mountains. And so they say, This day we've seen God speak with man. And man still lives. They seem a bit surprised. In verse 24, that given the power and wonder of what they've just heard, that they're even still breathing. And he says, they say in verse 25, Moses is retelling this, right? Now, therefore, they said, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. They do not think they're out of the woods. Ten commandments have been spoken. And they say, okay, so far so good. We're all standing. But how much longer can we really expect that to be? So we just, we just go ahead and let's draw the line right now. We don't want to hear any more of these words. Because consider this fiery mountain. Surely the consuming fire of God will be upon us. And they put it this way in verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that's heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still live? So they're imagining here that it's unlikely it's going to go well for them. That they are afraid. This is the kind of holiness, the kind of glory that fills them with trepidation. And at the same time, can't we understand in a sense that that's actually a good thing too? They're not sort of flaunting themselves before the presence of the Lord carelessly, thoughtlessly. In fact, they've got some wits about them where they're recognizing the power and glory of what we're encountering is so powerful and is so awesome that in comparison with that, surely we will be consumed. So there's some theological doctrine of God things going on in their minds. The Lord is sparing them. He is not consuming them. But they sense a transcendence to it all. Here's what they want Moses to do. Verse 27. Go near... And hear all that the Lord our God will say. Speak to us all the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. They basically said, listen, we want the voice of the Lord. We just want it coming through you. you know, so we want you, Moses, to be our mediator. If you go to Exodus 19 and 20, what that's followed by is Moses going to the mountain for 40 days and nights. And Moses will hear from the Lord the words that he's then going to give them later in Exodus 23. In this case, he's remembering with this new generation of Israelites, their earlier ancestors' request. The request that Moses be their mediator. So they drew near to Moses and they said, Moses, you draw near to God. You're going to have to go on that mountain. All right, Moses says, that's what your request, the request was from your ancestors. Here's what the Lord's answer was, verses 28 to 31. Verses 28 to 31, the Lord's answer to the people's request. The Lord heard your words, Moses said, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of this people, which they've spoken to you, and they're right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. I think verses 28 and 29 is the Lord's confirmation that when they sense something holy and glorious, but also fearsome and transcendent, the people are right. And the Lord is willing to speak through Moses, the mediator. In fact, he says here in verse 29 that the kind of heart these words are suggesting 
Oh, that they would have it always. Well, we know that in the intervening period between Sinai and the plains of Moab, there is 40 years of wilderness wandering. People of Israel did not have this heart always. But what's the kind of heart they should have? A heart to fear the Lord and to keep all of his commandments. This idea of fearing God is very much the kind that wisdom literature like Proverbs has in mind. A reverence for God. A love for God. If you were to say, well, am I supposed to fear the Lord or am I supposed to love the Lord? I would say to you, you can't fully separate those ideas. Because how could you say that you love God if you have no reverence for God or honor for God? And how would you say that I revere God, I honor God, I fear the Lord if you have no love for God? So these are related ideas. They're related ideas in the book of Deuteronomy. These are related ideas in the book of Proverbs. So he says that this reverence, this fear of God, and keeping all of my commandments would go together. That if they have a heart that honors God, their desire to walk in obedience will follow. The heart is the key. That it may go well with them and with their descendants is the blessing in favor of God on their covenant life. They're going into a land And they don't need to imitate the nations in their worship or the nations in their practices. They need to be a light to those nations. They need to be set apart and holy. Because if they reject the law of God and don't have a heart for reverence and fear of God, they're going to go into that land and it will not go well for them. But if they'll keep the commands of God, if they'll love him with their heart, it'll go well with them and for the generations that follow. So God said to Moses in verse 30, you tell them, return to your tent. But then God has words from Moses. In verse 31, here's Moses remembering all those years earlier what God had said to him. God had said to him, but you, Moses, stand here by me. And I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them. I think it's a summary way of saying everything that follows the Ten Commandments. All all those other instructions, all the other regulations, all the other civil regulations and ceremonial um, rituals, all of that stuff. Those all fall within this commandment and statutes and rules. God says, I will tell you this and then you will tell them. So Moses has this important role of being mediator and teacher for the people of God. And you shall teach them. Which means they are to be a learning people. They're to submit themselves to the instruction of Moses. He's the mediator and therefore the voice of God spoken through a human mediator. The reason they're to respect the words of Moses is because God has agreed to put his words in the mouth of Moses. And if they say, well, we don't like what Moses is telling us to do. The difficulty there you see is that Moses is representing the words of God in their midst. So if they reject Moses... They will reject the Lord. Now Moses is remembering all of this, right? So if you see in that intervening history what happens in Numbers 13 and 14, Moses is going to lead the Israelites into this land of promise. They've drawn near, but the the spies come back with a majority report to reject going in. And then they reject the leadership of Moses. Once again, it's already been a problem in previous chapters, but they say, we're going to have somebody new. We're going to go with that person back to Egypt. And all of this is demonstrating that it will not go well with them if their heart doesn't fear God. And one of the ways their heart will demonstrate a reverence for God is that they will hear the words of Moses spoken on God's behalf. The last part of our passage tonight is in verses 32 through chapter 6, verse 3. It's an exhortation to careful obedience. 
You know, I used to put together small models of cars and planes with my dad growing up. Hobby Lobby used to sell these a lot. And so we would go uh, to a nearby town, we would pick up some little model, and then we would get some special glue and little instruments, and we would start to piece together these things. Well, you couldn't do it quickly. I mean, you were, in, you were, going, you were at this for a while. <laughs> Especially if it was an expensive set, it was going to look really well done afterward. You had to just take your time. And you had to be so attentive to it. You had to be careful with every piece. So you're looking at instructions, you're looking at stickers, you're looking at the way things are taking shape. You wanted this to turn out the right way. And so what it required was an attentiveness worthy of the task. And what I find striking about verse 32 are the following words. You shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Oh, the heart attentiveness that must mean. You shall be careful to do it, which means they are to deliberately think on and mull over the commands of the Lord because it is so important to them that they love God and love neighbor. And they they can't just kind of float and drift around the covenant community as if it's just going to happen. They need to pursue it. They have to give careful thought to it. Carefully do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You're imagining here a path. Wisdom is portrayed that way, isn't it, in Proverbs? A path of wisdom or a path of folly. Thinking about a road on which one travels is a way of wisdom or a lack thereof. The path of of righteousness and a path of destruction. And here when he says, you shall not turn aside to the right or to the left, I think he's saying to them, the Lord's commands have carved out for you a path, seeking his presence and learning to delight in his law, to love him and to love your neighbor. Don't forsake that. Because what if you did? What if you said, well, here's the path the Lord has given for his commands in our life to run on, but I'm going to go to the right or I'm going to go to the left. It would be a deviation from the commands of God. And then the consequences that would follow should be considered grave and dangerous. He says in verse 33, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live. Don't you want to live? Moses could be heard to say. Don't you want to live, Israelites? Then love his commands. Walk in his words. Look at the path before you. Keep to the way that you may live long in the land you possess. Over and over again, don't you see the theme of what kind of life do you want, Israelites? Do you want lasting life? Do you want ongoing life and generation by generation, favor of God and blessing of God? Don't you want that? Then what's your heart like toward God? Does your heart love his commands or does your heart, ah, I'm going to go to the right or I'm going to go to the left. He says in chapter 6-1, now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. That you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it. See, the goal is that they're being prepared to enter a land where there are all sorts of competing ideologies. All kinds of gods. All kinds of sacrifices. All kinds of idol places. All kinds of conduct. And he's saying, well, what kind of people are you going to be? So I'm sending you over to take this land. This is the land for your possession, the land I promised the forefathers, right? So I'm, I'm giving you this command that this would be taught to you so that you would do these words. In verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son. Well, you know what this will involve that Deuteronomy 6 is going to work out for us? It's going to involve talking about the things and words of God to the people coming up in the next generation. 
That's what it's going to involve. Generational faithfulness and the proclamation of the deeds of God to those growing up. So that both you and your son and your son's son, he's wanting them to think about their lives for the sake of several generations ahead. Not just what's going on with them now. I want to live in such a way with a view toward generations, plural, in the future. That's a different kind of life. That's not just saying, what's just me and what I've got going on right now? He's wanting them to think about how what they're doing is going to affect the people to come. Now that's taking a longer view, isn't it? Not just my life for several years or several decades, but generationally he's thinking this way. That you may fear the Lord your God, in verse 2, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. In verse 3, in the last verse for our time tonight, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. It's like Moses is saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? Like, let he who has ears hear. It's, it's an attentiveness spiritually, because the hearing should be followed by being careful to do them. That it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. What did he say to Abraham in Genesis 15? Look up in the sky, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. That through the line of Abraham, there would be a multiplication of descendants. And ultimately, the promise there is a spiritual one. That those of the line of Abraham are not characterized primarily by ethnic descent, but by the faith of their father, Abraham. Jew and Gentile children of Abraham. This land that has been promised is a land flowing with milk and honey. We hear that for the first time in Exodus 3, when God speaks to Moses from a bush on fire. And now Moses is remembering how at a mountain on fire, the Lord was going to lead these people into a land of milk and honey. It's the same promise, same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. And the God over the Israelites was going to lead them into this land, not because they would be walking in and saying, all right, you know, where's the honey fountain or where's the spot where the milk is flowing? Um, I think these are meant to be symbols of plenty, symbols of abundance, symbols of blessing. They're to understand that the Lord is going to lead his people into blessing. That is what is their future. And if they reject the commands of God and they don't care about their covenant life together, then why should they think it will go well with them? Why should they think they would have life long and blessed in the land? Now, this law that the Israelites are going to have is not going to be a law they faithfully keep. We know that after Deuteronomy 6, as the story of Israel continues, Moses has been part of a people of God that have engaged in disobedience to his law. But the stories are going to take us through Joshua and Judges, through the books of Samuel and Kings, and the people who are going to go into that land are going to be a people exiled out of that land. They're going to be captured by the Babylonian army. They're going to go into exile, and in 586 B.C., their temple is going to be destroyed, and the walls around Jerusalem are going to be ruined. They are going to be a people who did not live long in the land because they rejected the law of God. Well, what is their hope? That they're finally going to be a people who get it together? No, the hope continues beyond the Old Testament into the New when Jesus is the new and true Israel. He is a true Israel and the Son of the living God who comes to keep the law that no one can keep. And He comes to not receive the blessing of the law upon His head, but to take the curse in our place. That we might have the blessing of life with God. 
And not to just live long in the land, but to have everlasting life in a new creation. The land in the Old Testament was a shadow of a land to come. That's why people sing songs like, I'm bound for the promised land. Who's going to come and go with me? You know, the reason they speak about our future new creation with Old Testament imagery is because people know how to write hymn lyrics using typology. They know how to take the foreshadowings of things in the Old Testament and say, yeah, that's looking forward to something. It's looking forward to something. And in this case, the people of Israel are hearing from Moses and one greater than Moses would come. One greater than Moses would come. And his words would be the words of the living God. He would be the perfect mediator. A better mediator than even Moses was. He would be the word made flesh. Something Moses could never have been. And according to Hebrews chapter 12, we are in a different situation under the new covenant. We've heard some words tonight from Deuteronomy 5 that remind us of that scene in Exodus 19 and 20. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the new covenant people of God are in a blessed state. Hebrews 12, 18 says, You, you new covenant Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a a darkness and a gloom and tempest, the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Hebrews 12 is remembering what we've thought about tonight. It's reflecting on Exodus 19 and 20, just like Deuteronomy was. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, he says, You have come to Mount Zion. Not Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant. We come to Mount Zion. We draw near to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than even the blood of Abel. So the Hebrews writer says, So, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Because see, things have escalated as redemptive history unfolded. The seriousness of rejecting the words of God. That was certainly the case in the days of Moses. But Jesus says, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you who've seen my miracles, who've listened to my words and have not repented. When the word made flesh is among them, there is a heightened sense of both fearsomeness and judgment. We're told in Hebrews 12, for if they, the earlier generation, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so the word of God now says to us, not only in the days of Moses should they heed the words of the mediator, how much more then with the Old and New Testaments together should we heed the words of the mediator, the one who is Jesus, the one who is a greater Moses, the one who is leading his people into a new creation, the one in whom there is everlasting life. This is the one who is leading us into our inheritance. None of us were delivered out of Egyptian slavery. Jesus delivered us out of what was even a worse condition. For now, for us, there is no condemnation if we are in Christ. And there is life everlasting if we are in Him. So let us not refuse Him who is speaking. Let's pray.